Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Episode 7 of the Bowery Boys. Something's afoot in Washington Square. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe, now with hotels in New York City, on the web at eurocheapo.com. Hello and welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bowery Boys. This week it's quite exciting actually. In tonight's podcast we're going to talk about Washington Square Park. It's history and, well, something's afoot. Something's afoot in Washington Square Park, and something's afoot here on the Bowery Boys, too. No. Some changes, some changes to both Washington Square Park and to the Bowery Boys will be revealed at the end of this podcast. So you better stick around. So I think a good place to start tonight is talking about, really... What is Washington Square Park? Just yes, just give us a just give us a breakdown. Right, the very basics of the park. Well, Washington Square Park is really one of New York's. I'd say one of New York's most popular parks. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's been around for a long time. It's everyone's seen it in pictures, and it's you know it's beautiful. Loved by tourists, loved by mm-hmm. New Yorkers. It's iconic. It's arch. It's fountain. You know, books were written around it, about it. It's featured in artwork, in movies, and songs. It's and, probably, yeah, it's probably one of the more char- character-driven parks of, of the entire city, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Lots of character. <laughs> there are characters strolling through the park, um, making caricatures in the park. It's, uh, I would say, a leafy respite in the middle of <laughs> Greenwich Village. It's, uh, and it still has something of a bohemian and an artistic character to it. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you, you get musicians still play there. People are playing chess. People are playing with dogs, with children. Dogs are running free. You can buy legal substances if you're there on the right day, like, say, every day. day. (laughs) (laughs) Just to situate the listener, uh, the the park is only really about two blocks north and south. It's at the very base of Fifth Avenue, uh, right around where 6th Street would be if it existed. Um, And it's about, I'd say, an avenue wide. Uh, in the park, what what's in the park, Greg? I well, mean, most, you know, the first thing you see, of course, is the gigantic Washington Arch, which is built to resemble the Arc de Triomphe in France. Uh, in the middle, just almost almost dead center, is a fountain. Curious, isn't it, that it's not centered? 
We'll discuss that. Um, there's various statuary and um, pathways that go off into, into diagonal areas. Crisscrossing and winding. Plus, there are a couple different dog parks. There are chess tables, as you mentioned. The place is filled with musicians, ma- magicians, jugglers. Mimes. Hot dog salesmen. And you then, name Yeah, it. and then, of course, you know everyone's favorite, um, the chess players, right. um, which have been playing there for decades. and That's, that's a brief uh, portrait, we could say, right, of Washington right. Square. But we're about to expand it a little, kind of break it down, mm. surely show you what's behind it in terms of its history and its culture. Let's start with the very beginning, back when it was a marshland. Okay. Just like everything was a marshland at one point, but uh, just imagine it. I mean, it was farmland by the Dutch and everything, whatever, but it was so far outside of what the Dutch considered town that it was used as burial ground. At first, used as a burial ground for uh, bodies that they didn't know who they belonged to. Then there was a yellow fever epidemic. They buried all the corpses there. And then it, there was even some archaeological evidence that uh, it was a, also a cemetery for Germans who came over. So there was 20,000 bodies still in Washington Square Park. Yeah. I was reading that actually when they were building the east side of the arch, they came across some bodies and some coffins. Like bodies, yeah. And there's, they didn't, I mean, they're still there. They didn't dig up 20,000 bodies. So oh, and just to make it even creepier, um, one of Washington Square Park's more well-known uh, landmarks is this tree in the northwest corner. It's called Hangman's Elm. It's actually the oldest tree in Manhattan. It's 310 years old. It's known for supposedly being where they hung traitors during the American Revolution. That actually isn't true. There was a gallows in Washington Square area during that time, but nothing was actually hung on the tree, but the tree still has that legend. So people still think that that was a haunted tree. Um, So anyway, a park or a shape was actually like ferried out in 1825 when it was developed as a military parade ground. Then these uh, these beautiful brownstones actually start popping up. And, and the, I'm sorry, when yeah. you say a military parade ground, this is in this is an area for training the troops. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. It's I'm not sorry, a place right. where they just not held parades. Parades, all day. Right. right? Like they were parading around. Yes, right. In formation. Uh, but there were actually these uh, brownstones that built up, and they called that the row. And then those buildings are actually still standing, still beautiful. They're owned by the college, uh, New York University, these Greek revival houses with white columns and any, everything. So the park sort of d- slowly developed from the neighborhood becoming uh, kind of upscale. 1852, the first version of the fountain that would be in the middle was built. Um, in the 1850s, uh, one of the statues that's still in the park is a statue of Giuseppe Garibaldi. Um, and he was actually a revolutionary who helped unite Italy. He happened to be in New York in exile in the 1850s. Oh, wow. And uh, he was so beloved and so honored that they actually put up a statue. So that, that's, that's in Washington Square Park, and it's still there. And that was in, in the 1850s. Sort of adding to the popularity of Washington Square Park, something I think we've all heard of, the Henry James classic novel that he wrote in 1880, Washington Square Park, about the doc, sure. doctor who had the kind of homely daughter and right. has a suitor who's wanting the money. So by 1888, um, when they actually built the Washington Arch as the 100th anniversary of the inauguration of George Washington to our to our country, it's weird because at that point, 
uh, you know, the row at that point had been around with these fancy houses for like a few decades. The south side of the park was actually a little poorer and there were some tenements. So and we're only talking about two blocks away. It isn't like it's across town. Two blocks. I mean, they could, you could, they could see each other. It was literally, literally like an other side of the track situation. So the people were like, well, why would you want to build this beautiful Washington Arch when it's, this neighborhood's going to eventually be run over by tenements? Well, the chairman of the committee who was building this arch basically said, do the occupants of tenements not like beautiful things? Oh. So it eventually got built. The and answer a, was? Well, the answer was yes. And, a, oh. a, well, and of course, I guess the last laugh, they were, there are no tenements there anymore because New York University has come in and built all their buildings there. And the row is still standing there. So now everything's kind of beautiful there. So, And, and so the, the arch was built in the 80s. In 1888, first, yes. first as a wooden arch. Oh right? yes, it was actually a wooden plaster, as to celebrate the inauguration. But it was actually it was so beautiful and people liked it that they put up the the, the one that's there right now. And what people don't realize, and that's what's really strange about it, is it was built to have traffic go through it. Mm. Like it wasn't. It's right now. It's a, it's a standalone structure with a, a fence around it, and it's part of the park. But when it was built, it was meant as a thoroughfare. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery+. Plus. Right, which takes us then parades us right into the 20th century because mm -hmm. into the 20th century, you know, there was this traffic going through. There were these carriages, of course, into the 20s, then the 1920s with the automobile popping up all over the place. Cars were just, there were two lanes of Fifth Avenue going straight through the arch. We have these photos here and we'll put them up on the website it's really incredible to see buses and, well, and cars driving look, straight through the, the arch. It's kind of weird. They all look quite small, really. The arch looks really immense, and it's almost you don't, you don't feel that when you're not actually going right underneath it. Right. Well, I think, too, you know, cars were smaller. Even buses <laughs> yes. were smaller than some <laughs> SUVs today. Uh, but in the 20th century, really, the, the entire area was becoming more fashionable. Uh, even the south side you were talking about right. was, was mm -hmm. becoming... Uh, up and coming, increasingly artists, writers, um, activists were 
congregating in and around the park. They were living in that, well, in some of the brownstones that you were talking about to the north. I think that was on Washington Square North. Uh, people like Edward Hopper, um, in fact, even had a studio. Edward Hopper was at... Oh, really? Yeah, he was at 3 Washington Square North. He has some great paintings uh, from his studio looking down into the park. Wow. Um, he kept that his entire life. Edith Wharton wrote about uh, mm-hmm. that same strip of townhouses right, right in there. Well, and Bohemia just took over the whole place, or the you know at least the cultural, thriving culture of it was became very Bohemian. Right, and, and an area, too, for protest. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, in 1915... There were 25,000 people who marched in the park demanding women's rights, uh, women's rights to vote, which in, makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, today still, you know, there's an occasional protest. It isn't quite, I don't think, the sounding ground that uh, Union, Union Square, Square right. just about 10 mm-hmm. blocks north north is. But still, you see it happening. Um, in 1922, I think it's kind of ironic, the NYU chancellor at the time uh, declared that someday all of the park will belong to NYU. Um, and I mean, it virtually is, even if, if not actually. I mean, they don't actually own it, but they they graduate there. They do graduate. They rent it for graduation mm-hmm. still today. And of course, anybody who's walked through the park has probably seen um, at least one NYU student film being shot. <laughs> if not yeah, been, if not in ten one. or in one, exactly. <laughs> right. And in 1934, then we get to the big dilemma of Washington Square Park. Robert Moses, um, who is a big, big character throughout New York City mm-hmm. history, especially in, well, in the mid, middle part of the 20th century, he became the parks commissioner in 1934. And he put his stamp and tried to put his stamp all over the city, including um, on Washington Square Park. Mm-hmm. He had a plan uh, to just take Fifth Avenue, basically, and extend it straight through the arch um, and open the entire area up to Automobiles, which which he was trying to do elsewhere, you know, and, did, and successfully did elsewhere in right. other places, but yeah, and so he, he would try this for decades. That would have like torn up. There wouldn't have been a village, basically, right? If, if well, the things that he wanted to do, right? Well, and he continued to try to do. I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but in 1964, he also tried to push through his Lower Manhattan Expressway, and I mm-hmm. think this is kind of where he sort of fell apart. He was his plan was to join the the East and the West to actually take the, the West Side Highway and extend it straight through Soho over to the Williamsburg Bridge. Right, along basically Broom Street, just knocking things out. I mean, it's horrifying to think about that today. Um, but in 34, he was pushing, of course, to basically uproot much of Washington but he Square didn't, Park. But he didn't succeed. Why did, what happened? Well, there were, there were protests. There were activists who started to band together. Um, and this, this fight lasted really the better part of three decades. I mean, into the 50s, um, when he finalized his plan in 1952, the area rent residents really banded together, including Washington mm-hmm. Square um, West resident Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh. Who was who was on the side of the activists? Uh, especially Jane Jacobs is a big name in the activist scene. Mm-hmm. She was an urbanist and she was an activist, and she was fighting Moses for quite quite a while. She was kind of an arch nemesis of him, right? If you read anyth- or know anything about him, she was like following him around with the broom in hand, basically, and managed to sweep him out eventually. But sounds like a hero. <laughs> uh, Shirley Hayes um, is also credited. She was now Shirley was just a resident, and she was a chairman of the Washington Square Park Committee. Uh, she was a mother. She she lived right there on the park. She rejected the plan. That plan and plan after plan after subsequent plan that Moses kept coming back with. And 
uh, she just kept rejecting any plan that pushed for getting rid of any bit of parkland. Um, and she came back with her own proposal, which received much support. And that was the, the amazing and new and unexpected idea of actually converting some of the roads mm-hmm. into parkland. Imagine that. Yeah, it, it, it had never happened. It's something that seems kind of obvious today. Um, and it passed in 1958. And ever since 1959, thanks to Jane and Shirley and hundreds, I'm sure, of other activists, autos have been kicked out of the park. Wow. Yes, thank God. Now, what's weird, Tom, is like during this period while all this was going on, what we all almost popularly, popularly known at, for Washington Square is the folk music scene. Which started happening around here, correct? Of like course, in the 50s yeah. and 60s. Right. Well, since the 40s even, the, the park was really a center for, for musicians, for jazz musicians, for you know the jazz musicians that were all over Greenwich Village, the uh, folk musicians that were popping up. And the, the, folk musician, the folk music scene was really developing throughout the 60s, and it was happening down in the village. Uh, and all the big names. Well, I mean, you well, know who was. Well, down right. There. I mean, like, I mean, yeah. Everyone: Bob Dylan, Peter Paul and Mary, Joan Baez. The uh, the clubs and some of the bars where they were hanging out were very close by, and so because also it was a place of just of protest, and that Washington Square Park would be a natural area to just to sit there and strum and play music. Sure, and it created I think it was this, a magnet. Really, yeah. it was a magnet for that generation, for people in their late teens, twenties, even thirties. You know, they were protesting. They were. They were even a part of a protest themselves, the so-called beatnik riots. Is that, isn't, isn't that the same group of people? <laughs> yeah, of? it was, actually. because So in 1961, it's, it's sort of a cyclical story. Tell me if this sounds familiar. But in 1961, there was another parks commissioner. Um, <laughs> what is it with these evil parks commissioners? <laughs> <laughs> I will get you, Washington Square Park. But it never works. No, it never does. And his name was the unlikely name Newbold Morris. He he actually issued an edict um, to to the police to start cracking down on musicians um, because they were performing without licenses and without permits, and they were attracting undesirables. Well, I mean, I, I'm sure that you know, 1950s, you know, prim and proper areas right. of New York City, looking down on Bohemians, right, and this crazy radical music being tied to protests, and then, of course, by the late 60s, you're getting getting it involved in the Vietnam War and everything, and it's bec- it's becoming a, sh- a real movement. Right. So I can see it as being a danger. But even be- right before Vietnam, though, in 61, we- on April 9th, so this is the same year that he issued this edict, um, about 500 or so folk singers defied the law. And they gathered with guitars, and they gathered in the park, and they started singing, and they marched up through the arch, and then turned around and marched around the park, all the way down to Judson Church, which is on the other side on Washington Park South. Um, the police called out the riot squad because nothing is scarier than a bunch of folk musicians <laughs> on the march. And people in black turtlenecks and berets and, you know, floppy hats. Right. Exactly. But in all seriousness, the police riot squad was called in. A group of protesters and musicians were sitting in the fountain area, uh, holding some holding signs, we shall not be moved. And the police attacked them with billy clubs and arrested 10 people, I believe. The next day, the tabloid, the New York Mirror, screamed in a sensational headline, 5,000 beatniks riot in village. (laughs) (laughs) Quite a riot there. Quite a riot. It was later rescinded, but still, I mean, that... 
ink stained memory. <laughs> but you know, that's but what they were fighting for still exists there and it coexists with the city and it's one of the reasons why it's such a beautiful place to go now. But not as beautiful as it should be. It's really? again, it's well, you know, it's a it's a it's not that it's run down. It's just that it hasn't gone through a lot of the renovations a lot of other like really well known places in New York have done. And other parks too. But like every you know, like every good deed that the city or the community tries to pull together, whether it be Governor's Island or whether it be the World Trade Center, no one can make up their mind. So for the past three years, they've been trying to come up with some proposals, basically the city fighting against the community. Just last week, the city um, speaker, Christine Quinn, and a council member by the name of Alan Gerson uh, presented to the community board just a new proposal that would include aligning the fountain right. to the Washington art so that you could st- – it would be symmetrical and you would be able to you'd look down and see it. So it would just create some sort of a like – you fold the park in half. And, and, and residents in the area have been pushing for this for a long time because it is sort of funny if you think about it. I know everyone's rolling their eyes thinking they want to move the fountain. But if you think about it, you go down Fifth Avenue, you go through the arch, and then the fountain is just a little bit to your left. It's a little bit – West. But the no, the problem is is it's it's that's aesthetic. It's not really practical. So the so the community board actually shut that down. The things that the community wants to do, the, the, their plan, which hasn't been approved either, just they all have these plans, like a six point eight million renov- renovation that would actually actually improve things, like the, like improve the public restroom, repair oh. repair the pathways, uh, repair the central fountain, which is kind of in a little bit of a state, um, enlarge playgrounds, enlarge the dog runs. Clean up the dog runs. They want to actually like, like improve it, not move things around. So we're, you're, right. they're still butting heads here. Um, there's there's some changes in the future for them, but we'll be here. Hopefully, we'll see them in our lifetimes. Yeah, it's it's funny because I actually, when we decided that we were going to do this today, I went to Washington Square. We talked on the phone. I was at Washington Square Park briefly this afternoon in the sun, and it was gorgeous. And I looked at that fountain. And it mm-hmm. never had occurred to me before that it was in the wrong place. <laughs> no, of course not. But once you say it, it could bug <laughs> you. But is it worth the $15 million necessary well, to move it 20 feet? We'll see what the city has to say. And on that note, uh, that's it for the Bowery Boys. But we do have uh, to announce that we ourselves are going through a little bit of a change. We're moving ourselves 15 feet to the <laughs> west. We're going to be more symmetrical so you can fold us. Now, what we're, uh, what we're planning to do next week, this is going to be a little bit of an experiment, but please let us know what you think of it. Next week, we'll be having two episodes. Two. Two episodes. They will be shorter in length, right. but I think combined together will be of the same length that a normal show is. And so we'll bring, be able to bring you twice as many topics, and hopefully we'll have them up online on Wednesdays and Fridays. Um, and I think that the idea is also that we can focus on s- perhaps more specific episodes in New York City history. We're going to play around with the format a little bit, and we do, of course, want your feedback. We absolutely do, and so you can get get that to us. And we do have our website, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. Let's just say that next week's episodes are the theme of next week's episodes are angels and demons. We'll just let you dwell upon that. And anyway, have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.